Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm Sheena and today we're talking to Heather Rose Jones. She's a lesbian fantasy author who's written two of my favourite fantasy novels, Daughter of Mystery and Mystic Marriage. Today she talks to us about researching the fantasy world that she creates. She also gives us some great writing tips and she does a reading from The Mystic Marriage. All that and more coming up on The Right Stuff. Because when it comes to writing fantasy, Heather Rose Jones has the right stuff. Hi, Heather. Tell us about your books. Hi. So I write fantasy and historically based fiction. The Alpenia series is uh, a sort of a Regency era, early 19th century fantasy. It's what might be called a fantasy of manners. So there's fantasy elements, but it's also about the society and people's relationships and interactions. I tend to think of it as if you took a cross between Georgette Heyer and Alexander Dumas and Sarah Waters, you might get something like this. Yeah, I think that's actually quite a good description. Uh, it, it, it perhaps is, you know, self-pumping up a description. but uh, You know, go ahead and pump up. I love your books. I think that they're wonderful and you can promote all you like. Thank you. You write a very interesting kind of fantasy because you don't create entirely fantasy-based worlds. You base a lot of it on reality. So, like, you have a, a hierarchical structure in the society, which is very reminiscent of what Europe used to actually be like. Yes. In fact, when I first got the idea, the, the just beginnings of the idea for Daughter of Mystery, I was originally planning to make it actual historic Europe, but with, with the fantasy elements, but, but I wasn't planning to invent a country. But then there were th- things I wanted to do with society, things I wanted to do with the legal structure that just didn't fit with any existing country. And I decided it was easier to plunk down a, a brand new country in the middle of Europe that didn't exist than to try to make it work with uh, some existing country that just didn't fit what I wanted to do. This also means, though, that you own the keywords Alpenia for Google search, which I think would also help. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I, one of the first things I did was I went out and, and uh, grabbed the domain name. That's something that's so important for writers. You need to be sort of aware of your online presence. Oh, yeah. In fact, this is sort of getting to a, a trivia at this point, but I actually sit down and think for book titles, how findable is this book title? Is this a really generic title or is this something where, you know, for Daughter of Mystery, if you put Daughter of Mystery into Google, you get my book. Uh, it's something I think about. It, it, it's, it's more important than you might think. That's actually really uh, a really good piece of advice for authors, I think. Yeah, it... it it actually affected the title of the current book I'm working on, which is Mother of Souls. And originally I was thinking of calling it Alma Mater, which of course is the same same meaning. But when I tried searching on Alma Mater, it was just all over the place. You know, it hits all over the place. And and whereas Mother of Souls, much less common. And that, that decided it for me. It's like, it makes it a lot easier to find the books. Is this also in the Alpinia series? Yes, yes, it's the third book in the Alpenia series. Oh, excellent. Okay, so let's talk about uh, creating your world. You see, the thing is, with fantasy novels, I find authors can very often over-describe, over-complicate, make it just unreadable. Well, there's a tendency, if you're doing a creation of a world, and especially if you're creating an entire world, you're doing an entire secondary world, that the world becomes a character on its own. And you, you've, you've poured so much love and so much devotion into building it up so that it's real to you that 
it, it, it goes back to the principle. It's like, I worked hard, damn it, I want you to know how hard I worked. It's a very understandable reaction, but of course, as a reader, the reader doesn't care how hard you work. The reader just wants a good story. So how do you know when enough is enough? Well, a great way to know is to have good beta readers. Um, I, I have a set of truly excellent beta readers who uh, I, I give them this long questionnaire about all sorts of aspects of the story. And I rely on them to be very straightforward, very honest with me, and to say, you know, you, you totally messed this up. I have no idea what you're doing here. You know, I got totally bored when you got, went into all the details of exactly how the magic worked. Or, you know, one of the best pieces of information I got was, I have no idea what your characters look like. I want to be able to visualize them. And I had to go back in and put in descriptions. I'm not a visual person myself, but that was great piece of feedback that people want to know the visuals. But so part of it is just have some test readers, um, have some test readers who you can trust to be honest with you. I think I find in talking to other writers, too often people get beta readers who are friends or their fans or their family members. And basically, they're just so excited to get a, an advanced read of the book. Uh, and they think their job is to pump you up. They think their job is to say, oh my god, this is wonderful. Yes, of course, this will be the greatest book ever. I need beta readers that are more like a, a set of second editors. Yes, um, I was actually going to make that exact point. I think very often people go wrong with the beta readers by just getting the wrong people. Also, people who don't like the genre will never be good beta readers. Yeah, true. You have to have beta readers who, who are evaluating what, what the book is trying to be and not, not critiquing it for something that it isn't. But getting back to the, the idea of how much do you put in, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a cliche, but you use the iceberg principle. You know, you have to know 90% more than what you put in the book. So there's a, a good rule of thumb is to say, if I find that I have put everything I know about this topic into this story, then obviously I put too much in. Okay, so now you, you're building a world, and where do you start? What's the first thing you start researching or jotting down or thinking about? So, so here's actually my secret. I don't do a lot of research before I start writing. Or, you know, I guess the really true thing to say is I have been researching this book all my life. Some of the research that goes into these books... I did starting when I was 10 years old and I was living in Europe for the year. When I was 10 years old, my family had a chance to uh, spend a year in Prague. I just fell in love with history at the time. I did lots of sightseeing. I just loved all the old buildings and the old streets and wandering around and learning about the, the history of everything. I mean, one year doesn't, doesn't do a lot, but that really fixed in my mind a look and feel, a sense of what it's like to live in a city where, where the new town is the 15th century. I mean, I love history. I have loved history all my life. I read a lot. I, I have always just sort of been curious about everything. I read little bits and pieces about everything, pack it all away in, in what I call my compost heap brain so that it's, you know, fermenting and, okay. and, and building up fertilizer for those plot seeds. When I sat down to write Daughter Mystery, I didn't have to say, okay, what do I need to research first to create this? I just started telling a story that grew out of that, that whole historic compost heap in my brain that was already there. And every once in a while, I'd come to something and say, huh, I need to know more about this particular detail. But mostly, I knew the shape of what I was going to write. I knew the shape of the history and the shape of the society and the shape of the legal issues. 
and the shape of what I wanted to do with the religious magic. And there's almost never been a time where I, I wrote something, I came up with something off the top of my head, and I went back later and said, oh gosh, this is all wrong, I have to do it all differently. Part of it is that I, I write in generalities to begin with, and then I fill in the details later. But, but mostly, it's, it's, I'm, I'm making use of just a lifetime worth of storing things away. I think you're quite lucky. I have, um, I don't have a compost heap of a brain. <laughs> okay. What was also interesting for me about your novels is that your fantasy elements are actually quite gentle. So your magic elements are not overtly, you know, dragons and big magical scenes. It's, it's very gentle kind of religious magic almost. Although, although it expands a bit as, as we get into the stories more. One of the, the things to know about the magic is that because these stories are being told through a very tight point of view, and because I'm starting off with characters that are fairly young and with not a lot of experience, the things that you find out about the magic in the first book, that's not everything there is to know. That's just what my characters know. Indeed. So when we get into the mystic marriage and we get the alchemy and you know, I, I hope it's pretty obvious that this is not just primitive chemistry. This is actual magical alchemy. Although the characters don't think of it that way, the alchemy is another face of the magic that's going on. And there will be more and more of this as the books go on. The workings of magic are wider and broader than they currently are aware of. And they will learn more and more about what other people are doing with it as, as the books go on. I like that because it's, I think, also smacks a little bit more of reality. It's not just, hey, somebody suddenly got a superpower. Yes. The other thing that was really important to me for the magic was I, I didn't want to mess too much with history. I wanted to have magic that didn't really change the outlines of history much. So I had to say, well, how can you have this kind of magic? And, and let's be honest, uh, my, my character, Margaret, you know, she's kind of, she's a little bit of a Mary Sue. You know, she, she's <laughs> unusually talented. She, she figures out how to do these things. You know, how can you have people like her in a world and not have that change things? And so I, I can't, had to come up with this context where the magic is unreliable, where where it's hard sometimes to distinguish real magic from fraud. And it makes a context where, you know, yes, certain individual people can have, you know, pretty significant magical powers, and yet their ability to make a long-term difference in the history of the world is minimal simply because because of all the uncertainty around it, because it's hard to pass that on, to pass on a legacy to other people. What I also like about it is your characters are so very unique from each other as well, because while you mention the main character from Daughter of Mystery, she's much more open than the main character of the mystic marriage. It's not the same experience each time. You're not experiencing well, the magic each time. write the same book over and over again. To some extent... With the first book, you know, I, I did my, you know, young lovers in the first book. Women just coming of age, this is their first love, in essence, and, uh, you know, they're going to live happily ever after together. And I've done that. So now I have to do something different, because who wants to have, you know, the, the just, just the, the two young lovers every single time? So I, I really had fun with the second book, and especially Jeanne de Chardelac being an older woman. And this is very much sort of a, a, a not a May-December romance, but certainly a May-September romance. 
and uh, and the issues with the difference in age and experience and very much the difference in personality, where Jeanne is this very outgoing, very extroverted party girl. She's a socialite. Her, her superpower is throwing good parties. Then you've got Antoinette, who is this very repressed, very self-controlled, very damaged person. And aside from that damage, I mean, I'm not saying it's part of that damage, but aside from that damage, she's very introverted. She does not like crowds and people. She just wants to go off and do her own thing, you know, do her science. And yet there is this connection between them. And it's, you know, I hope I made that connection uh, believable. That was one thing that my, my beta readers really hammered at me on. They said, you know, we have to believe that these two women fall in love with each other. Well, that's an interesting point that leads me to this question. Your romances are very secondary to what else is going on. Romance is not the main thrust in either of your books. Yes, it's actually a mistake to categorize these as romance novels. They are fantasy adventures with romantic elements. And I know why Bella Books categorized them as romance, because, I mean, essentially romance is, is 99% of the lesbian fiction to market. People would be less likely in that market to buy them if they didn't think they were ro romance. On the other hand, it means that I've had a number of people react. It's like, hey, you lied to me. You said this was a romance. And, and you know, it's like, it's not. It's like, well, yeah, okay, it's not. The third book, I when I sent in the proposal to my publisher, I said, please do not tell people this is a romance. This is not a romance. <laughs> yes, there are romantic encounters within this book, but it's not a romance. And I, I hope that that gets marketed um, appropriately. Do you find you get quite a big backlash because it isn't a romance? It, it's kind of hard to tell because... This kind of fantasy is so out of the mainstream for lesbic. It's not what people are used, for, used to. It's not what they're looking for. I have had an incredibly hard time penetrating the lesbian fiction market because people look at it and they say, I don't know what to do with this. You know, it's not short. It's not contemporary. It's not primarily a romance. It's not erotic. Uh, you know, what is this thing? In, in some ways, I'm writing mainstream fantasy that happens to have lesbian characters. Yes. But that means that the, the marketing gets very strange. Surely there's a niche for this, though. I can see it. This is, you, you write very well. These are uh, entertaining fantasy reads. In my review of the, the first book, I actually said, I wish Tolkien had written like this. Thank you. I, I really appreciate people saying nice things like that. Well, it's it's because the books are really brilliant. They're well-written, they're well-researched. I, I found the sort of historical elements completely fascinating, and I loved the way you married such individual characters and their own little paths into this bigger world. That's why I really wanted to talk to you about the researching thing. I see your career is also in about sort of finding holes in uh, manufacturing. Is that correct? <laughs> and in fact, I, I tell people that the... The process of, of researching and writing novels is very similar in some ways to what I do for a living. Mm. And especially in terms of, you know, the iceberg principle. So, so I, I work for a major pharmaceutical company. My job is to look at failures in the manufacturing process and figure out what went wrong and how to fix it and what the consequences are. Then explaining this in as simple and concise a term as possible uh, for other people to read. So it gets back to, I have to know everything about everything. That, that whole compost 
deep brain again. Mm -hmm. And then I have to distill it down and tell a story. And it's very similar to writing novels. So uh, I, I think I've got the ideal job on both sides. Okay, so if you write fantasy that you feel is is relatively mainstream, why don't you make it mainstream? Why did you decide to go with the lesbian element? Well, the, the most honest answer is because I did not believe that any mainstream publisher would commit to a seven or eight book series where all of the protagonists are lesbians. I looked around at, you know, who was publishing books similar to what I was planning to write, and I could not find any mainstream publisher that gave me confidence that they would do that. And I didn't want to find myself in a position where two books into the series, they said, okay, you know, if enough of the lesbian thing, you know, write something else. The reason I picked Bella Books was because I wanted a publisher for whom that was not, that, that was a given. The issue of who the characters were was, was not going to be questioned at all. But then why didn't you write a heterosexual novel? I mean, Because I'm a lesbian? I don't know. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I am the Lesbian Review. I promote all things lesbian and only lesbian. The question here, though, is I always find it interesting that authors go into such a niche because lesbian novels are a very small niche in the grander scheme of things. So you're a very teeny niche inside a very small niche already. And I'm, I'm asking because I'm always curious as to why authors don't choose the, the slightly easier route, if you like. When it comes down to it, I'm writing the books that I wanted to read. I'm writing the books that I always wished I could find in the bookstores, the ones that I longed for, the ones that would have fed my soul. You know, for those very same market forces, nobody was writing those books. I have the, the great luxury of not having to write fiction for a living. You know, I, mm -hmm. I make a, a, a very decent living um, at my, my day job, and I, I cannot afford to quit that and write full-time, not until I retire. But that means I have the freedom to write what I like. If it, if it turned out that the, the, the fantasy aspect meant that, you know, they weren't selling enough for Bella to keep them going, then that's a different issue. But I didn't have to worry about writing commercial books for the mainstream and so I, so I didn't. So I'm writing what I love. I think that's brilliant. And I think that comes across, though. I think it's very evident in your work that you do love it. Thank you. I think it makes a huge difference to, to a reader when you're reading something that somebody's just put on the page because they think, hey, this is going to sell, versus I am loving writing this novel. So if our listeners wanted to get hold of your books, where could they find them? The simplest way is to go straight to Bella Books. They're available from Amazon. They're available online through Barnes & Noble. I always suggest, if uh, this, this mostly applies to people in the U.S. because of shipping and whatnot, but if you have a local bookstore, even if it's a chain like, like Barnes & Noble, uh, go into the bookstore and uh, order them directly because sometimes that means they'll order two copies and leave one on the shelf for someone else. And that's a great way to uh, just be discovered by people. Paper copies, ebooks, all, all the ebook formats are available. So, can we expect another five or so books out of the series? Currently, the Alpenia series is scheduled to be. I always have to count it off in my head. Seven or eight books or so, and the joke is I add on, or however long it takes to get to the revolution. How can people get hold of you? I have a website, which mm -hmm. is alpenia.com, A-L-P-E-N-N-I-A.com. 
I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Heather Rose Jones, but you have to leave out one of the R's between Heather and Rose because I hit the character limit. So it looks like Heather mm. Ose Jones. I'm on uh, LiveJournal, which is where I do a lot of blogging. My LiveJournal handle is HRJ. And I'm on Facebook as Heather Rose Jones. Um, I have an author page, which is uh, open to the public. If people want to get to know me better, I always advise going to my Life Journal. I blog there at least five days a week. I do reviews. I talk about what I'm writing about. I do the Lesbian Historic Motif Project, which is my uh, research, my historic research blog. You tell us and about that. So that is a series of think of it as an annotated bibliography. Basically, I'm trying to help make a bridge between academia and uh, fiction writers. That's cool. So if a lesbian fiction writer needs information, this is a good place to go. For... If a lesbian fiction writer wants to know what were the historic realities and the literary motifs relevant to lesbians in a particular time and place, I might be able to help them. The entries show up on my, my live journal, so that's the um, HRJ on live journal, and I also collect up the links to them on the Alpenia website. And on the Alpenia website, you can also get a link to your short story. And uh, Yes, there are a couple of short stories available for free. Uh, I also have links to all of my social media in case people forget what the names were. And I usually have uh, upcoming conventions listed there. The mm -hmm. most recent thing I have published is a short story in an anthology of lesbian historic romance, which is titled Through the Hourglass, and it is edited by, uh, let's hope I get this right, Liz McMillan and Sachi Green. And uh, I have a story in there set in 16th century Italy based on the poet Laudomia Fortiguari and Duchess Margaret of Parma and their uh, romance, which is not too far from the reality, except I had to fill in, you know, some of the details. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for interviewing me. And now for a reading. So this is towards the beginning of the mystic marriage uh, when Antoinette has returned to the capital city of Rotenek, penniless and in need of funding for her alchemical research. And she calls on Jean the Vicomtesse de Chardelac, who is a very, very slight acquaintance of hers from, from before when she lived there. Where have you been keeping yourself all this time? Jean asked, as if it had only been two months and not two years and more. Here and there. Antoinette's forceful entrance retreated into diffidence. Prague, Heidelberg most recently. I thought it was time to come home for a while. And you're still doing alchemy, I see, Jean added, glancing briefly to where the other's skirts were pocked with small even holes and washed with pale stains. Antoinette followed her gaze, and Jean could have sworn she saw her blush, except that Antoinette Katzlin never blushed at anything. Yes, I'm still doing alchemy, and that touches on why I wanted to see you. Jean would have received her for no reason other than curiosity and boredom, but this added spice. But of course. Come in and sit. I was writing some tedious letters, and you've saved me from the chore for now. She turned to her butler. Have some tea sent in, and she looked Antoinette over in quick evaluation. Tell Cook to send up some cake and sandwiches, or whatever she can manage. I was too busy to eat earlier, and now I'm famished. It was a bald-faced lie. He knew it. The cook would know it, and Antoinette could certainly guess. Jean saw a mixture of mortification and gratitude sweep across her face. How long have you been in town? Jean asked, leading the way to the green-striped settee by the bow window. You must be starved for news. A few weeks only. 
then you'll know we lost Prince Augustum. You're in the more past. God rest him. She chattered on of marriages and deaths until the refreshments had been brought and the doors closed again. Now tell me, she said with a sudden change of mood, whatever brings you knocking at my door? Antonia finished eating a slice of almond cake with careful small bites, then settled her hands in her lap and looked Jean in the eye. Because you know everyone, and because, given your disregard for convention, of all the people I know in Rotenek, you seemed least likely to feel the need to deny me. Et voila, Jean responded with a gesture of welcome. But that tells me only why it was my door, and not why you have returned at all. And why shouldn't I return, Antoinette countered. My exile was my own choice, not demanded by law. Jeanne waited patiently for her to recall that she had come for a larger purpose than verbal fencing. You mentioned something about alchemy. Yes, and then with the air of a rehearsed speech, Antoinette explained. I was engaged in some very promising work in Heidelberg, but now I find myself in need of a patron. I hoped that you might be willing to act as a go-between, given that there are certain difficulties in approaching prospects myself. The mask slipped a little. And you aren't the sort to dismiss the idea out of hand. Of a woman alchemist, that is. That was the Antoinette she knew, plunging into business with no pause for preliminaries. Jeanne sipped her tea slowly to sort through the possible replies. Alchemy? Not at all within her usual métier. Opera parties and boating expeditions were more in her style. And yet she could see why Antoinette had approached her. This called for the same sort of diplomacy and strategy as launching an ill-favored debutante. It seems to me that there's one obvious candidate for a woman seeking a patron for her studies. Have you asked Margaret Sovetre? It's likely she's forgiven you by now. But I have not forgiven her, Antoniette responded in a tone as smooth and hard as marble. No? If you don't care to speak to her directly, you could always ask Barbara. You know the two of them are... She placed two fingers side by side and waggled them suggestively. At Antoniette's startled response, she wondered if she'd been too indiscreet. No, Antoinette repeated, less coldly, but just as firmly. Jean shrugged. As you will. I can think of several men who might be interested in such an investment, but they'll want more details of what you plan. I would prefer, Antoinette said carefully, a patroness rather than a patron. Jean threw her hands up in a shrug. Now you're being foolish. It's the men who have the money, and it's the men who take little risk to their reputations in associating with a Katzelin, or an alchemist. That's how the world works. I know well how the world works. Should I seek a male patron? Antoinette's shrug was more sedate. I have neither the aptitude nor the inclination to please a man in exchange for his support. She left the implications hanging between them. And yet you come to me, knowing my reputation, Jean said with a smile. Dare I flatter myself to think you wish to solicit me for a carte blanche? Oh, Tonica, if you could see your face! She couldn't tell whether Antoinette was more flustered by the jibe or the nickname. No, no, sit down. If you're going to come to me for help, you must learn to bear with my teasing. Truth to tell, I think it would be too expensive for me. My purse isn't deep enough to support an alchemist, even if my name could bear the weight being tied to one. That was Heather Rose Jones, and I'm Sheena. You're listening to The Right Stuff. Show notes available on thelesbiantalkshow.com.